The Air Force is setting up a new management structure to ride herd over its advanced battle management system. ABMS, of course, is the Air Force's contribution to the Pentagon's Joint All-Domain Command and Control Project, JADC-2. Officials say ABMS has made progress in some key areas, but those technical advancements haven't always been coordinated one with the other. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has details on how they're hoping to fix that. At the top of the new management structure will be a brand new program executive office. The Air Force calls it the PEO for Command, Control, Communications, and Battle Management, or C-3BM. Officials also announced Monday that Brigadier General Luke Cropsey will lead the new office. He's currently the Director of Security Assistance and Cooperation Programs at the Air Force Lifecycle Management Center, and he spent most of his career in acquisition and system engineering jobs. Frank Kendall, the Secretary of the Air Force, tells reporters the main motivation for creating the new post is what he and other senior leaders leaders see as a lack of integration across the ambitious and extremely complicated ABMS project. The observation was that the whole area of command control communications, battle management, modernization needed centralized leadership on the technical side. That a lot of work had been done, some of it by the joint staff, some of it by our operational staff, some of it under the ABMS umbrella, but it hadn't all been pulled together and it hadn't been focused or integrated enough. And we needed somebody to do that from the technical side. Kendall says part of his thinking about the need for a new, highly empowered leader to coordinate the service's battle management efforts comes from his experience as DOD's top acquisition official during the Obama administration. During that period as Undersecretary for Acquisition, Technology and Logistics, Kendall published annual reports on the performance of the defense acquisition system. And one key finding was that historically, acquisition programs for military command, control and communications were the most likely to fail or get canceled. And the reason they're unsuccessful is that they're broad, they require interface control across partners who may not want to change to accommodate each other, uh, and they're very complicated. Often people will start with very visionary ambitions about what they want without having thought through what it's really going to take to get there. And then when you start down that path, you get into all sorts of trouble. You have schedule problems, you have cost problems, you have performance problems, and eventually programs like that die. I don't want that to happen here. And the way to avoid that is to put somebody in charge as a technical authority. And the way we're organized right now with separate PEOs and program managers We really don't have a single technical authority that covers across our C3 battle management systems. Luke will be that authority. He will also have system engineering responsibilities for the entirety of our C3 battle management, for both air and space forces. So he's going to be the glue that ties it all together. The idea that ABMS needs more centralized management isn't exactly new. The Government Accountability Office reported as early as April 2020 that the program was on a risky footing because of unclear decision-making authorities. The Air Force itself has recognized those management challenges, too. In November of that same year, the service assigned its Rapid Capabilities Office as the Integrating PEO for ABMS. That's the exact same verbiage the service is using for the new C-3BM PEO. But officials say the new office will build on a strong foundation the Rapid Capabilities Office laid down. And Kendall says PEO C-3BM will hold quarterly briefings with both him and Air Force Chief of Staff C.Q. Brown. They'll make it clear to the rest of the Air Force that General Cropsey's directions need to be taken seriously. It's a big job. When I talked to him the other day, I said, Luke, I'm about to give you the hardest acquisition job I've ever given anybody. And that's what it is. Uh, It's complicated. There are a lot of players in the game. And getting everybody aligned is really a tough job. 
but we've got to do it. And the reason that I, I mentioned this morning we're going to have quarterly reviews by myself and the chiefs is that if you don't have top-down support, you can't succeed at that. And so we're going to give him the top-down support he needs. We're going to help him make this, enforce the decisions that he wants to make and get everybody aligned. Uh, quite frankly, if we don't do that, I think we're just going to end up in all kinds of squabbles internally. Uh, and that's the traditional path for programs like this. We don't want that to happen. Another change as part of the reorganization, the Air Force is moving the staff and funding of its current chief architect's office into the new PEO. The chief architect position was vacated earlier this year when Preston Dunlap departed government service. The Air Force plans to recreate something similar to the new position soon when it announces a new chief of engineering within the new battle management office. But even if the reorganization proves successful, it's only part of the ongoing challenge to the Pentagon's bigger JADC2 project. To make the whole thing work, it's not just the Air Force's engineering efforts that'll need to be synchronized. Also, the other services, too. Kendall says he's at least reasonably optimistic the department can achieve that goal under a recent decision by Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks, which gave DOD's Chief Digital and Artificial Intelligence Officer an oversight and management role over JADC2. The Deputy Secretary and I have talked, and Dr. LaPlante and the, uh, and the CIO and the new Chief Data and AI Officer that just came on board about a month ago. I think we're all in line on the intent. I think that what the deputies tried to do by bringing in the, the new CDAO is something similar to what I'm trying to do with Luke Cropsey, right, is to have someone that can be her focal point to try to bring everybody together. And I've had a conversation with him. It was a very good conversation. Uh, introduced him to my acquisition people. Uh, Luke will be working closely with him and with others. So I, I think it's a, it's a work in progress, but I think we're moving in the right direction. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. 
Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I didn't I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is 
to solve near-term problems. I always say it's sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders, and then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. 
And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Your story, it lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.